available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we are the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. It's going to be an Arizona-themed show today, David, for a couple reasons. But if you have any questions or comments, we definitely want to hear from you, Pac-12 Podcast. At gmail.com is our email address. Or if you'd like to call or shoot, send us a text. You're sending texts all day. Send one to the Podcast of Champions. 424-532-0678 is the number. Put that in your phone. Put it on speed dial, man. You can text us whenever you want. You can go to our Twitter account, at Pac-12 Podcast. Tweet us. We might respond. We might not. We might read it. We might not. Probably read it. We could you know, check them out. And also our website, Pac-12Podcast.com, where we have all of our old episodes our old picks, all those things like that. So you can catch up on anything you missed on Pac12Podcast.com, David. Beautiful. That was great. You you nail that intro every time. Me, me, <laughs> I almost screw up calling it 24-7 sports. I, I want to say my mouth wants to say scout.com every <laughs> single time. If you listen long enough, you'll hear the pause. You can listen for it. When I'm saying it, I almost say scout.com every time, but I don't. And I think you have a much harder job up top, but I think mine is a tougher barrier. Uh, when when did we like? When did we stop being scouts? That was that's got to be two years ago. I think it was, huh? Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be at least two years ago. Uh, it's just further proof I'm a moron. You, it, also, leave us a five star review on iTunes. You want to you want to hear our latest one? Yeah, I would love to. This is from Brian underscore thirty four five star review here. Uh, star system. That's the subject line. This is a five-star podcast, but you have to listen each week to see if they live up to the hype or if they prove the theory that stars don't matter. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Very smart. Stars matter. Stars matter when we are a five-star. You know, stars don't matter when we drop below a five-star. Something about like iTunes review people. Like I'm not like I don't go on Yelp and review things, or I buy stuff on Amazon like every day basically, but I don't review stuff normally. And when you see comments sometimes on certain things, like on Twitter, of course, or anywhere, you know, a lot of times it's just like, you know, incoherent sentences. It doesn't make any sense. And they, you know, they spell things, whatever. But for iTunes review people, it seems like there's not just like wealth, uh, they're like thought out. They're, they're funny. Uh, they, they have the inside joke twist thing to it. It's like, it seems like that's a smart group of people, the people that leave the iTunes reviews. Am I wrong on that? I think you've got to be right. I mean, I think it's just a, uh, I mean, it's a, that's an odd subset of people. No, no insult intended to anybody out there leaving iTunes reviewed, but it's, it's just, you know, like Yelp, that seems like it's of the people, right? Like basically anybody can leave a Yelp review and yeah. they can criticize whatever restaurant they're in. There's a barrier to entry to like actually caring enough to review a podcast. Like, like I would never leave a review on a podcast and I listen to a lot of them, but like, I just, whatever. 
but like to leave a review for a podcast, not a place where people are going to eat, but a place, but a thing that people are going to listen to. I think that's just a, it's a level of commitment and those people are clearly committed and they write great reviews. I'm yeah. proud of them. Yeah. And it, uh, thanks for everyone that does that. I mean, it's, it's cool for us and uh, you know, we keep showing up. Like that's what, that's, that's our number one. <laughs> that is, that is literally the only thing we do. We keep showing up here. And recording this show. But hey, you know what? Our show is not going to be as dumb as it usually is today. No, we have. A, so, right? like, yeah, we have like an Arizona twist to it. Like I said earlier, uh, we're going to we already talked about Arizona State early on because their their spring practice is already over, like we talked about. But we're going to talk uh, with Jason Shear, so who covers the Arizona Wildcats. Uh, we'll talk about spring football and some of the storylines from Kevin Sumlin's uh, second year at the helm. But we also have a very special guest. Uh, we're going to talk to investigative reporter uh, Caitlin Schmidt. She works with the Arizona Daily Star uh, about the uh, some of the Title IX scandals and stuff and, and how some of these programs have turned around. So it's a little bit you know, out of our comfort zone, I guess you could say, Dave. Yeah, I mean, it's actually about something of substance and not like Disney princesses. So <laughs> this is going to be great stuff. Um, if you get a chance, go check out the Arizona Daily Star. Pa- hit pause right now, people out there. Uh, go check out the Arizona Daily Star. Check out um, Caitlin Schmidt's uh, six-part look into uh, the Arizona's uh, efforts to enforce and improve Title IX, but also Oregon, Utah, Baylor, um, the future of Title IX um, as it pertains to uh, reporting policies um, on all of these campuses, and then come back to the show and uh, and be educated for our, our talk with Caitlin. All right, so our first guest today, pack show here on the podcast of Champions. We got Caitlin Schmidt. She's an investigative reporter in Arizona. You can follow her on Twitter at Caitlin C. Schmidt. It's C A I T L I N. She is uh, she works for the Arizona Daily Star, award winning award winning investigative journalist. If I can get all this out, but she just did a six part series uh, about Title IX. It has a, a big impact on the Pac-12. Talking about Arizona, where she's from but also Utah and Oregon and then some stuff on Baylor as well. And Caitlin's going to share some of the, her insights from what she found out the, through this big story. Caitlin, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Caitlin, it's uh, it's great to have you. Um, if ev- everyone out there, if you haven't read the series, it's really, really interesting talking about the evolution of um, Title IX kind of policies at all of these different schools, some of which have had some issues uh in the very recent past dealing with uh title nine issues but um broadly caitlin i want because i think when people hear title nine um especially among our listenership i think the first thing they think about is um you know equal scholarships for sports and that sort of um element of it can you explain kind of the other significant element of title nine and the thing that kind of informs the majority of your story which is the reporting of sexual assaults and and that aspect of title nine Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, definitely when Title IX was implemented in 1972, it was mainly focused on improving gender equity, giving women the same access to sports in K through 12 and colleges that men had. But over the years, it changed. And part of Title IX requires that universities um, protect students from gender discrimination in the form of sexual assault, sexual harassment and dating or domestic violence. So, That is the aspect of Title IX that I've been focusing on for about the last year and a half. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways that schools can go about implementing this. But in 2011, um, President Obama issued what was called the Dear Colleague Letter, um, which was a multi-page letter kind of 
giving schools guidance on how they should investigate these claims of misconduct and how they should handle them um, with an emphasis on providing support to students. And so as we've seen at schools like Baylor, um, Title IX hasn't always run smoothly. And recently at the University of Arizona, we've had several high-profile incidents involving athletes and coaches. So that's kind of what I dug into. Um, most of the schools that I looked at, um, I focused on athletics, certainly with Baylor and U of A, but some schools out there like Utah didn't have a real specific um, athlete-driven problem. They actually don't have any Title IX lawsuits. They haven't had any newsworthy scandals. So they were interesting to look at just to see what a school who hasn't been in the spotlight has been doing with this law. So you guys definitely want to check it out at the Arizona Daily Star. Uh, Caitlin has the, the links on her Twitter account if you want to check out the – there's six parts like we were talking about. There's also a five-part podcast series you can check out as well. Uh, maybe we should start with uh, Arizona because I guess that's where – you said this started a year and a half ago. I guess this is where this kind of what, – what began. And, you know, Rich Rodriguez came out. There was that uh, – you know, he came out and said there was this – you know, they were taking a stand. They weren't going to tolerate violence against women. Uh, but then you find out like there's all these different allegations that were coming out there. And then, you know, he ends up getting fired as well for some, you know, something kind of along the same vein. Uh, but I guess there was 27 investigations over a five year stretch. So it seemed like he was talking a big game, but maybe not backing it up. Right. And that we know of so far, um, only eight of those only eight involve um, football players. The rest of the athletic department is whole, but we haven't really been able to get details. Um, the U of A isn't willing to provide us with the number of student athletes that have been accused of Title IX violations. So we've been getting this information from court documents from one of the two Title IX lawsuits that the school is facing. You mentioned um, Utah up top, just that they are kind of a standout because they haven't had the Title IX issues. So it was interesting to look at what they are doing specifically. And then the stories also um, cover for our Pac-12 listeners out there. It also covers Oregon and Arizona in addition to Baylor. So um, a glimpse at those three schools, which have had issues of varying degrees um, over the last several years. What did you find uh, in Utah in particular? Was it a was it putting in your own words, but was it a, a sense that they um, went above and beyond the letter of the law initially or a difference in culture? What, what was your estimation of why they've had fewer issues than other schools? You know, they they said that in 2011, when the Dear Colleague letter came out, that they started evaluating and then constantly reevaluating their policies and programs. And they've gone back and done that basically every time other schools have made headlines with Title IX issues. So they've been very quietly sitting back, watching what's going on. When something has made headlines at another school, they'll look at that portion of their policy and see if it needs changing. So, you know, they revise their Title IX policy every couple of years. The last time they did it was in the spring of 2017. Um, at that time, they also initiated um, many other changes, um, a case management tracking system so that they could see how long it was taking to investigate and finalize these cases. Um, and one of the other unique things about them was that their Title IX office is located in their um, Equal Opportunity Office and the Affirmative Action Office. So they have kind of all of their civil rights issues being handled in the same place. But um, they've just been really, they've been really responsive. They do a campus sexual assault climate survey every two years and make changes based on student responses. Um, the most recent one, they found out that students knew what Title IX was. They knew the conduct that was prohibited, but they didn't know what to do if something happened to them and if they needed help. So they went and made changes again to make sure that students knew where the offices were located, um, 
So it's it's just really been this kind of constant shift with no tipping point to initiate it. So, I mean, yeah, I would definitely say they've gone above and above, beyond some some other schools, particularly. <laughs> the uh, the different pieces, one of the usual, there's a lot of good statistics in here, a lot of good data, but um, talking about, you look at, there was X amount of investigations over like a, say a five-year stretch. You, a lot of it was like 2012 to 2017, I believe. And it th- seemed to be like, you know, uh, uh, it's certainly a higher percentage of the Title IX complaints were coming from athletes. Um, did, was that surprising at all? Is there some, is that, is it somewhat to be expected if you're talking about more active members of like the student body, like, you know, people that are commuters that don't, you know, they don't really are around campus. Was some of that explained or did you get any more information on some of that data showing that athletes definitely com- you know, contributed a lot more to those numbers? Um, We actually pulled our data. ESPN did a really intensive um, investigation back in October, I believe, and they asked for records from 65 Power 5 schools. They got records from 32, um, which is where all that data came from. But what they ultimately found was that athletes were three times more likely than non-athlete students to be accused of Title IX violations. So you know, definitely it was popping up in a higher percentage. And there were, you know, many, many reasons behind that, their status on campus, you know, in some cases, in some cases with schools, it was the type of Title IX training that was going to these athletes, but it, it, you know, it certainly wasn't surprising based on their findings. And honestly, it wasn't surprising based on what I'd been finding from the U of A prior to that. So it, it kind of lines up with what's been floating around out there. Okay. I'm, I'm interested in all the different changes, you know, Oregon, obviously, um, I, I thought a really interesting thing that you touched on was, um, in, I think the one immediately after the, or maybe it was in the Oregon piece, um, was the person talking about mandatory reporting and how that can have a stifling effect on people reporting sexual assault because they know it's going to then get escalated beyond that point. So it can have a stifling effect. It can have a, a couple different, uh, effects that don't necessarily lead to, positive outcomes. Um, and that's a unique part of what Oregon has done to respond to their own issues. Do you get the sense that between say what Utah's doing uh, or what they've done, um, since 2011 where they're constantly revising and they've got clearly their own process in place and Oregon adding that kind of unique reporting policy where they can have some control over whether or not it does get escalated beyond their initial report. Um, is there a collaboration between these schools when they're going over their different policies? Like, did you get any sense of there's a collaborative element between the universities to settle on something that's maybe universally good? You know, not between those specific two, but everybody that I talked to at these different schools all mentioned that higher education is a really collaborative space. So they, you know, they're all constantly comparing ideas to each other. Baylor had said that they got the idea for the student athlete training that they're doing from the Air Force Academy. So, I mean, I know that it's being discussed at higher education conferences, and I think everyone's just kind of borrowing ideas and figuring out what works for them, which is really similar to what you see in other agencies. Um, I also cover law enforcement, and that's exactly what the criminal justice system does, is they hold regular conferences and discuss what's working in their communities and bring them back and tweak it. So it's really, it's interesting to see schools learning from each other's, not only their mistakes, but their successes to kind of implement positive change. But they definitely have all been very clear that no school is going to solve this issue on their own. And it's, you know, it's important to share information and learn from one another. Yeah. I think that was one of the common themes. It's like, Hey, we've made strides, but it's not over. Obviously how, how different was it? Would you go to a place if you're, you know, you're covering Arizona, you find, you know, there's 
a bunch of investigations like you talked about. Baylor is just, we got to talk about that in a little bit, but Baylor is just an absolute, I mean, just the crazy, like the word, it's got to be the worst that everyone's ever seen. And Oregon had their problems with like the hoops players and stuff like that before. And where compared to Utah, where they're actually doing a pretty good job and they're just trying to get better. Like, was it pretty different talking about the three schools that had some real issues as opposed to, you know, kind of Utah just trying to tweak things and make it a little bit better? I mean, you know, the common thread between all those schools was that these people that I spoke to were so passionate about this space and about student safety being the priority. And, you know, it's not about catching criminals. It's about making sure that students who are victims of these types of incidents can graduate college, can make it through school safely. They don't feel like they have to drop out to avoid their attackers. So it's, you know, they're really, really passionate people. But it it was interesting to see a school that's had no problems with this, um, just so committed to it, which is nice, which is what we want to see all schools doing. Um, And, you know, Baylor was really clear that schools shouldn't have to go through what they went through to be making these kinds of changes. So I hope we're seeing a shift. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it does seem like the shift is to kind of go more towards the spirit of the law versus just obeying the letter of it. And the interesting piece there is, I think this might be, I think it might be in your part five, which I'm not sure if it's been released in the paper yet, but it was certainly online, um, where Betsy DeVos, uh, the secretary of education, um, is in the process, I would say, of revising the directive um, about Title IX, um, where essentially taking back a lot of what um, uh, President Obama put forth in the Dear Colleagues letter, um, essentially taking away some of the mandatory, well, you can maybe explain it a little bit better, but what kind of impact do you think that will have? And if you could explain it first, and then what kind of impact do you think that will have on Title IX policies at various schools? Have they, did you hear any inkling that people are anticipating that? And would that even have an effect on what they would do um, at these universities? Yeah, it's kind of a watch and wait space right now. So Betsy DeVos put out this 149-page document proposing massive changes, all sorts of changes. But some of the key ones that kind of stand out would be that schools no longer have to investigate incidents that take place off campus, which is the majority of incidents. Um, There also would be an element where people who are accused um, could live cross-examine the person who accused them. So similar to court. Um, And there's been a lot of a lot of outcry from victim advocacy groups about how traumatic that particular element would be. But one of the other pieces is that the schools would be able to lower their standard of proof to find someone responsible for violating the code of conduct for sexual misconduct items. So, um, you know, what I've been hearing from lawyers and experts is that this these changes really favor the suspect. Um, There's been some arguments that there's not enough due process involved, but um, what I'd gotten from the one attorney I spoke to and some people in the behavioral health field is that this could be really damaging to victims. And the idea that, you know, schools won't have to investigate a rape that takes place off campus, even though both of those students will be on campus Monday through Friday is really distressing. Um, Most of the police reports that I found involving athletes at the U of A have been off campus incidents. Very few of them happen on campus. So it really would change the face of Title IX. Um, So part of the changes was that schools and individuals were given several months to provide public input and Betsy or her staff or the Department of Ed is supposed to read all of those pieces of public input. Um, There's more than 100,000 So the schools that I talked to, yeah, right. Some, some light reading there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
But the schools are anticipating that nothing is going to happen, if anything does, until November. So everyone's just sort of taking a wait and wait and see approach. Um, you know, some schools absolutely will. If if a student comes, this happens, and a student comes forward and says, "I was assaulted off campus. I have a class with this person." Um, some schools have been very clear that they will still provide support. They will still take intermediate intermediary measures to maybe change that student's class schedule, move them to a different dorm, help them avoid this person. Um, but as far as investigations, it's kind of unclear about what will happen. The, in the Oregon part, uh, you talked about, I think some of their, I, I forget who you were talking with there, but the the mandatory reporting policy, there was, I, I guess there's some controversy there, like, is it good or is it bad or how, how it works? I think Oregon had a little bit different view. Maybe you could have kind of explained what that is and, and what are the two different sides, I guess, of it. Yeah, and their policy really is quite unique. So most schools have kind of a blanket mandatory reporting policy where, Everybody is considered a mandatory reporter. So if a student comes forward and says that they are being sexually harassed or they've been the victim of domestic violence, um, this employee would first give the student resources um, and then the employee would be required to alert the dean of students or Title IX office to begin an investigation um, basically whether or not the student wanted to take that action. So Oregon has a psychologist on staff named Dr. Jennifer Fraid. She's been there since the late 80s, who had been surveying students basically for decades to find out how they felt. And the studies that she come up with basically said that this policy can be traumatic um, to survivors or victims because they lose control. And what has just happened to them, obviously, is that they've been stripped of control. So to immediately take away another element of control from them can be really damaging. So Oregon has three categories of employees. They have confidential employees, which would be like people in campus health or in the counseling center who have a legal requirement to keep the information confidential. The second category that they have are designated reporters, and those are people in the Title IX office, residence advisors, um, law enforcement, people who are in a position that they could take action based on these complaints. And then the third category is called student directed. And that is the biggest category. And basically what those people do is they'll get a report. Um, they will talk to a confidential employee without revealing any of the student's information to get, you know, details about what the student can do, resources, et cetera, and take it back to the student so that this student can get counseling if they need counseling, their class schedule can change, but they don't actually have to go through the investigation um, process and do any of that, you know, because what these schools have found, all of them, is that the majority of students coming forward to the Title IX office don't want a full investigation. They just want the behavior to stop. They just want to be able to go to class. They don't want to have to deal with this person. They don't, they don't necessarily want full adjudication. They just need some help getting back a sense of normalcy. So Oregon said that they've had great results with that. They expected an increase in reporting, which they've seen. Um, but I kind of learned through this project that a high number of reports isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it sounds bad, of course, but it means that you've created a climate on campus where students feel comfortable reporting this kind of thing. And when you take into consideration that sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes out there, um, to see numbers like that coming in, I think, means that these schools are succeeding and making students feel comfortable that they're there to help. The um, the Arizona piece um, talking about Ron Wilson is the uh, their Title IX director. He was hired, I think, last October. Is that right? Yeah, he yeah late October. He came in. I think the first day was November first. So 
he um he has a, a thing he says at the end of your I think it's your final section of this. I'm just giving it all away at this point. Um, but he, he's he, he um, he's talking about how he wants to be a national model um, for basically this this element of of the college experience, the Title IX enforcement and and all that. And what's your sense of the likelihood of that, given what you know about what he's proposing for um, for the U, U of A um, in terms of their Title IX approach? Um do you think U of A can be a national model for this uh, coming out of, you know, kind of not a great period for it? You know, I think they I think they can. And I really think he's the right guy for the job. Um, I've, I've spoken to him in person several times. This is a space that he is very knowledgeable about. Um, he has experience in it. He's also a former judge, so he he's familiar with kind of the criminal justice side, um, but is used to looking at these things from a neutral perspective. Um, but he is really committed to improving things. And when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, he's really the first guy on campus that has said anything to the effect of, yeah, we had some serious issues, but we're not going to let that happen again. So it was really nice to see someone acknowledging that things maybe were not handled properly in the past and that that's not going to happen again. So I think, you know, he has different challenges ahead of him than let's say Baylor did. Baylor is a private university, was able to make these decisions on their own without you know, having to go through the same process U of A will as a state university. Um, of course, finances is going to be difficult, but, you know, Ron seems really committed. He says that um, the U of A's president, Robert A. Robbins, who is also new, um, is committed. So it's just, you know, we have this bureaucratic process that we have to go through here where if Ron's going to propose a change, it's going to have to go up the ladder before it's implemented. So I think it, I think it'll take some time, but I think we have someone who is committed to changing the culture at the U of A and, and, you know, making the school something that everyone can be proud of. Um, and he's definitely opening to learning from other schools. So I, I think it's doable. Um, I don't think it's going to happen overnight for sure. But I think if he wants it to happen, I think he could make it happen. Can you talk about maybe the, uh, the affirmative team, I guess, that they put together? And uh, I know one of the lines was that uh, they, you know, they kind of came together to, to hash this out. And they said they argued that Title IX fostered uh, corruption within universities and ignores the due process right of those uh, cues. So it's something you kind of hear a lot, but you, you know, there's, there's like this balance, right. Of you have to, you have to, you want to protect the victims obviously, but then does things go too far and does it make it too easy? Like what, what did they find and maybe talk about what that team was? Um, You know, they had talked, they had talked about how you, when you get administration involved, you get school money involved and there's kind of a, desire, I guess, to sweep things under the rug. That was said a few times by that team. Um, they they referenced a lot of these cases involving athletes that happened years ago that we're now just, just now learning about. Um, you know, we had two football players kicked out of school for a group sexual assault back in 2015, and we just now found out about it. So oh, wow. they, they, yeah, so they've been really tight-lipped about these things, um, which I think is what the students were talking about, you know, when it it fosters corruption. And they really came at it from both sides, not just that it ignored the due process, which we do hear a lot. Um, universities really do, I believe, their best to keep the identities of these people private until um, <clears throat> the investigation is resolved. I know that they asked both sides not to talk about it, not to share anything on social media. But, you know, when you're talking about cases with student athletes who are very well recognized on campus, um, it's, it's kind of tough. Um, a couple of years ago when we had Orlando Bradford, um, former Wildcats running back, who's now in prison, 
he was arrested after two women came forward and said that he'd been abusing them. Um, when I was in court for his sentencing, one of the victims was in there and said that she'd been harassed on campus immediately. You know, her identity was kept out of the police reports. It was kept out of the news, but because everyone knew who he was, they knew who she was and uh. other students were harassing her. So the affirmative team just I firmly believed that nothing about the way the schools have been handling this um, have been right for either the victims or the people who are accused. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, the negative team also didn't really think that Title IX was effective either. Um, and they differ greatly on what would be a better system. But I had been having a hard time finding students to go on record and talk about this. So it was really cool to be able to sit into that debate and listen to other students ask questions. And it was really clear that on the U of A, at least, um, there's not a lot of faith in Title IX as a law or the way that it had been handled in the past. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, one of the things that stands out is, um, I mean, the amount of scandals over the last, I don't know, decade at all different schools, Penn State, Baylor, so on and so forth. Um, it, it's generally marked by some sort of vague cover up followed by real reactive policies. And Baylor, it sounds like they're obviously getting a ton better, but it is all reactive to the scandals they experienced. Oregon, it's reactive. Arizona, it's reactive to what already happened. Utah being proactive. But did you talk to any other schools? I mean, even just in background or just uh, what was your sense on the level of kind of uh, are other schools that haven't yet experienced, you know, these issues to this level? Are they being more proactive about their timeline issues or you know, it, are they just kind of waiting, hoping something bad doesn't happen? Do you know what I'm asking? I absolutely do. And what's interesting is I, I had a really hard time finding schools who were willing to participate in this project. Right. Um, I got the sense that, I mean, one of the schools actually told me, you know, administration was hesitant because every school is just one police report away from becoming a scandal. So, which is kind of true. Um to a degree, you know, this really could happen everywhere. It certainly is happening everywhere. So anyone could be next. This is, certainly isn't unique to Oregon or Baylor or the no. U of A. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it was, it was so difficult. Um, I had initially approached Ohio State. The first three schools I wanted were Baylor, Oregon, and Ohio State. And Ohio State agreed, and we had an interview set up to firm up travel details for me to go there. And they canceled 15 minutes before and said the communications department didn't want them to participate. Um, <laughs> I reached out to Kansas State and LSU and never heard back. Arizona State was kind of interested in participating, but we couldn't firm anything up. Um, so, you know, I, the project's done, but I'm going to keep reaching out to schools because I want to know what other schools are doing. Hopefully, you know, seeing three schools on the record, seeing this kind of project, other schools will want to talk about it. But I, from just those dealings, um, I definitely got the impression that schools are nervous. They're scared. <laughs> The, uh, yeah. the Ohio State timing, I'm curious of, was uh, was Urban Meyer, like, was he suspended at the time? Like, what was happening when when they told you no? It, they they told me yes when he was suspended. Oh, okay. Um, and it was, yeah, and it was about a week later that they told me no. So, and I was surprised, um, you know, because I, I approached them right after all of that news came out. And was surprised when they had agreed. Um, so I really kind of wasn't shocked when they didn't. But it was, yeah, it was, it was right in there. <laughs> yeah. What uh, Baylor seems like to be the outlier of all. The, I mean, I, I, I'm, there's issues everywhere, but Baylor's just seemed to go. I don't know what was going on with Art Browse, and and it seemed like there was a reluctance there when you're following this real time. 
like you got to get rid of everybody. And then it seemed like the school was reluctant to do that. Um, even, you know, like the president can start, he ends up, you know, becoming a professor or whatever. Like they didn't really get rid of him and they finally did, but then they ended up hiring a couple bad eggs, like right afterwards. Like, it's almost like they were just trying to be defiant. Like we're not going to go down this path of cleaning everything up. But then eventually they did, but it seemed like, I don't know if through your research, you saw, it just seemed like there were a reluctance there to kind of step away from what they were doing. And it's, it's baffling to me how, just the 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 pure number of horrible stories that came out of that program, and and like I said, the reluctance to to make any changes early on. Right. I mean, I think we all know it's it's difficult to get employees to go away. Sometimes um, the U of A, I believe, is still paying Rich Rodriguez. So <laughs> I think part of the issue with Ken Starr for Baylor was perhaps you know private institution. They don't have the unlimited funds that like the University of Arizona does to just pay these people to go away. Um, there was also some issue with the Baylor Board of Regents, who, of course, had to be taken into consideration. Um, so it definitely wasn't it definitely wasn't an easy road, but they were very thoughtful in, you know, the next few major hiring decisions they made. Um, Mac Rhodes, I've never seen anyone more committed or more passionate to this type of thing. And, you know, he very promptly fired those two bad apples that were brought in after he started. And that definitely wouldn't have happened under Art, Art Bryles or right. <laughs> under McCraw or Ken Starr even. So, um, you know, and I talked to him when I was out there about why, you know, why is it so hard to find coaches that, you know, understand what consent is and why consent is required and why these things are so important. And, you know, nobody really knows. Um, but it seems like they have a good bunch. He's he's really proud of what Matt Rule's done. Um, you know, they have you know they have victims from the past that are now coming forward because they feel comfortable talking about what happened to them. I was shocked when they told me that you know one of the victims actually spoke at an event for incoming students. I mean, that's that's something you don't see. I've talked to a lot of victims from the University of Arizona, and I don't get the impression that they will be coming back for any back to school events anytime soon. So. <laughs> Baylor really took some steps um, to make things right with these women in, in a way that they didn't have to. I mean, even, you know, the women who weren't suing them, they retroactively reached out to everyone um, to see kind of what they could do. And, you know, one of the things that I saw with the Baylor victims was there was just such a, such a sense of pride. I mean, they really loved that school. So despite all of the terribleness, something, something special kind of happened there. I mean, it's, it's, it was amazing to me. This is, you know, a couple years post assault and this woman's talking to hundreds, you know, thousands of incoming students. So we know whatever the reason they made these changes, definitely, definitely they were reactive. Um, what they're doing now is for the right reasons. And it seems to have really resonated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and uh, reactive policy, can end the same good way. It's just you'd prefer not to have the 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 thing that caused the policy um, to be reactive. But um, you touched on the coaching um, and and kind of what makes coaches not understand consent. And I thought, you know, the note you had on on Matt Rule, um, you know, kind of correcting his players when he he saw them kind of talking about women a certain way um, in the locker room. Um, how? It, it is kind of the elephant in the room in all of these conversations is that the coaches, you know, varying by school, but they have a lot of power, especially the revenue sports coaches, uh, basketball and football. Um, what's your sense of the education process for those guys? And is that a, is that a significant element of all of this kind of Title IX 
improvement is is re-educating and educating the coaches better on all of these aspects and and is there a reluctance on their part to be educated about these things yeah i mean i think that's part of it i mean i think it's also hiring decisions but you know you have to have somebody that's committed to it but definitely re-education is a big part they'd said over at baylor that it was you know five hours of training right away for all staffers but i mean macros had made that comment about it has to go far beyond that it has to be a living breathing process that you do every day so it's it's constant conversations but i think you know we have people now that are in a good position to judge, if, you know, it's going to, if they're going to let these things slide under the rug with players, with athletes, whatever, but it's, there's no clear answer on why it's, it's so hard. I mean, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be in the culture of the sport. I just don't, I don't know, but I think, you know, I think we need to be starting with this in high school um, with high school coaches, perhaps, because if they start educating their players or teaching their players how to talk about, or two women, you know, when they're 15, 16 and 17, colleges won't have the kinds of problems that they do when these young men and women come in when they're, you know, 18, 19. Caitlin Schmidt does an amazing job for the Arizona Daily Star. She's an award-winning investigative journalist. Like we said at the top, follow her on Twitter at Caitlin C. Schmidt, six-part series. Uh, You should definitely check it out. Hopefully you got a little taste of it. Listen to the podcast too. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, Sharing what you know, sharing. There's so many interesting you know aspects about this, and I think a lot of the our fans that you know the people that are you know out there listening and they they like Pac-12 football probably didn't know a lot about this stuff. And we, I, I know David and I learned a lot by reading it as well. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Caitlin. Really interesting stuff from Caitlin there, Dave. And we're going to keep the Arizona theme going because now we're going to talk about the Arizona Wildcats. Not starting uh, spring practice for another week, so we won't get to see what Kevin Sublin's crew has uh, going quite yet, but we wanted to preview that and maybe talk a little basketball with Jason Shear. Does a great job for the Wildcat Authority here on the 24-7 Sports Network. Follow him on Twitter, at Jason Shear, S-C-H-E-E-R. What's up, Jason? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Jason, lovely to have you on. Um, look, I, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to lead off with basketball. It's against my rules on this show. But what's going on with Sean Miller? I mean, my dude gave a speech where he sounded like, I don't know, I'll see y'all, you know, maybe sometime, keep in touch, love you guys, I'm never coming back. But then it doesn't sound like that's actually the import, the impact we should be taking from that speech. Can you fill everybody in? on what's going on with Sean Miller and whether or not he'll be leaving Arizona in the near future. Yeah, I think what got everybody, he makes a similar speech every year, but I'm not sure he's cried like he did in this one. So like he stopped twice to kind of gather himself because he was crying. And I think when he, he was thanking the fans and said, thank you for allowing me to coach for 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. And then he stopped to cry and everyone pretty much said, Oh crap, this is his goodbye speech. And then afterwards in the press conference, he was say, he was asked, um, are there any doubts about your future? Do you think you'll be here next year? And he said, no comment. And then everyone's like, oh, no, that, means, that definitely means he's gone. But uh, he had a press conference today, and that's the first thing that he let off was, hey, guys, just wanted to clarify, that wasn't a goodbye speech. I just got emotional. That's not what I meant. Sorry if it came off that way. And as of now, I, I don't think Arizona is planning on getting rid of him. I, I don't think he's planning on leaving. If this FBI thing has shown us anything, it could change in 20 minutes for all I know. But 
the plan as of now is is for Sean Miller to be the coach of the team next season. How like the Pac-12 obviously isn't a, a great basketball conference, but is it? How crazy has it been there? I mean, it's obviously a big, you know, it's a, one of the blue blood programs. It's you know Arizona basketball. Everyone knows it. Has it just been a kind of strange year with all of that stuff going on? The FBI, like, how weird has it been there covering all this? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been because it's it's not a fun team to watch. It's it's the feeling is once the season ends, we could kind of start to look forward, even though they, there's another trial coming up in April, but. Uh, I think people kind of want things to be done with, and it, it's been a weird season because it's and it, it, it'll it, it'll be this way until the trial's over and all that. But you're kind of on eggshells, like waiting: is there going to be another story? Is Sean Miller going to be the coach next game? Is, it, and it's just it's, it's an awkward feeling for for everyone. And then Arizona's not a good basketball team at all. It, it's a bad basketball team. It's one of the worst teams that we've seen in recent memory. So. Um, for the first time that I could remember since covering a team, people are like, you know, put us out of our misery type of deal. We we don't want to watch this team anymore. And um, it, there won't be a lot of sadness if this team loses on Wednesday because uh, at least there's some optimism with next season. Yeah, looking at it, uh, this is uh, Ken Palm's ratings has as the worst Arizona team that Sean Miller's had there. So that's, that's dead on. Um, do you think uh, – was that – the, the hangover effect or whatever from all of these investigations, all this kind of stuff going on, do you think that had an impact on the court or has it just been mostly just not the right combination of players this year? It's just not the right combination. I mean, there's guys that wouldn't even have been on the team if they didn't lose recruits last year. Uh, Justin Coleman was taken late. Ryan Luther was taken late. Those And those guys have been uh, two of Arizona's better players. There's There's no depth on the team and it's kind of to me the quality of player that Arizona has just isn't what it's been in the past and and you kind of can take a look uh it was the first time since 1983 that Arizona didn't have a Pac-12 first teamer which is crazy to think about and and they didn't even have a guy that was close on any of the teams if Brandon Williams was healthy he maybe makes the all-freshman team but um there's no player where you point to and say man that guy's really good and it's kind of unusual, even on Arizona's bad teams, they've, they've had guys that are really good or at least better than what they are now. And uh, maybe the distractions played a, a part at times, um, but but I think at the end of the day, it's just a matter of this team isn't very good. All right. Well, that's way too much basketball talk, so we have to move God, on. God, that was awful. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for making it through that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so kind of looking forward to uh, this, you know, uh, spring practice with Kevin Sublin and that crew. Um, what are some of the big kind of storylines for you going into spring? Uh, they start uh, just for, I know David loves when I give the uh, logistics March 18th uh, and the spring game will be April 13th. Um, what are you kind of looking for? Like some of the big storylines going into the spring? Uh, I think the, to me, the, the biggest one besides just, you want to see improvement from Arizona. It wasn't a bowl team last year and, it suffered some bad losses, but if we're talking personnel, wide receiver, uh, Arizona lost everyone pretty much. It lost Sean Poindexter, who was clearly the best receiver. It lost Sean Brown, Tony Ellison. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Arizona replaces those guys. I think Khalil Tate, obviously, is the big deal. He, he turned into more of a, a pocket passer last season and didn't really want to run until later in the year. And 
are we going to see the same Khalil Tate this year? Are we going to see an improvement? Is is he going to run more? Um, I, I think really this team's going to go as far as Khalil Tate goes. And, and the rumor, or not the rumor, but the word is, even though it's kind of workouts and, and not team practices and stuff, is Grant Gunnell has been really, really good as a freshman quarterback. And it'll be interesting because that's Mazzoni's guy if, if he allows him to, to push Khalil Tate and compete a little bit. And uh, I, I think generally speaking, the thing that people have their eyes on is the QB battle and, and really just the overall depth of the team, which took a hit because it seems like Arizona's losing a guy every couple of days. Uh, they've lost numerous guys on the defensive side of the ball, numerous offensive linemen, and, and depth has to be a huge concern going into spring. With, uh, with Tate, um, a lot of the talk last year was, it was kind of a, a tough thing to assess whether or not he was deciding not to run like it was a conscious decision from the beginning of the season or if it was influenced by his I, I think he had a kind of a nagging ankle injury all year um, or lower leg injury I'm not sure if it was specifically the ankle but um, he had a, an issue all year that was uh, like kind of making it harder to run but what's your sense of it where did uh, was that a decision he was making to make himself I don't know in, in somebody's eyes a better pro prospect was that something that was pushed by the coaching staff? Did they want him to run more? Uh, can you go through the dynamics of that and what was what was playing out on the field in terms of his, you know, essentially not running anywhere near as much as he did the previous year? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of everything. Uh, when when Nomazoni got to campus, he basically told Khalil Tate, he didn't necessarily say you can never run, but he said, look, you're, you're going to be a, more of a pocket passer and use running as a weapon instead of being a runner and then using passing. And uh, I think Khalil Tate, I don't want to say he got insulted by that, but he, he took it to an extreme that basically said, look, if, if you don't want me to run, I'm, I'm not running. And so even in the first game of the season when he was healthy, he, he didn't even try to run. And uh, it, when he did, he would pull up. And it, it just it wasn't a weapon right from, from game one. And then eventually he got hurt. Um, so then he definitely wasn't running. And it, it looked as if someone had a press conference where he basically said, we need Khalil to run and then from there on out mid-season or so he started to run more and towards the end of the season he was running more but uh injuries started kind of taking out of him and so we don't really know if he wasn't running towards the end of the season because he was hurt or just because they had kind of gone back to earlier in the season but um you know I've heard it all I've heard Mazzoni didn't want him to run I heard that he talked to a couple NFL scouts and they said you need to pass more if you're going to make it to the next level and um, which is silly to me because, you know, I, I like Khalil Tate, but so it just it wasn't Khalil Tate. It, it just we, we went from a Rich Rod offense and credit Rich Rodriguez for knowing how to use Tate and, and using him correctly to a, a stumbling offense where it just wasn't the guy that we had grown accustomed to. And, and I think that was the biggest issue that people had was it just didn't look like Khalil Tate. It looked like kind of a, a guy learning a brand new offense. And, and it looked from the outside. Um, that Arizona was kind of taking away his strengths. And I think it was a little bit of that, a little bit of Khalil, and a little bit of the injury also. So you 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 know, you want to see like a Kevin Doyle or a Greg Anell like try to push uh, Khalil Tate a little bit. But there's – I mean, he's going to be the starter, right? What, what do you want to see from from that, you know, quarterback – not really competition, but, you know, have them push each other. Is it really just to kind of make Tate perform a little bit better? Or, or what do you want to see? Yeah, I, I think – what. what what you want to see is you want to see him push. I mean, it, everybody knew that he was the starter last year. Kevin Doyle wasn't ready. Rhett Rodriguez wasn't going to beat him out. Uh, it just, Khalil Tate would have had to play really, really poorly to not be the starter. And this year, Noel Mazzoni has basically said, look, 
uh, we're going out there and, and it's an open competition. And I don't believe him. I, I think they're going into spring ball with Khalil Pace, the starter. But from what I understand, he's going to give Grant Gannell, Kevin Doyle, those guys every opportunity to, to take that job. And my guess is Khalil Tate is the first game starter. But, you know, you never know with Khalil. He, he's going to graduate. It could be a situation where if he doesn't feel he is the 100% starter, it wouldn't surprise me even if he transferred. Uh, it, it's just it's up in the air with him and his relationship with Bill Mazzoni. But uh, to me, if you're Mazzoni, you want to at least see Gannell, Doyle, et cetera, push Khalil Tate to be a better quarterback and to maybe do a little bit more of what that coaching staff wants. You mentioned injuries, but um, the defense uh, generally improved last year from the previous year. Um, my read of it two years ago was it was like a lot of freshmen playing a lot of time. Last year it was more sophomores. Is it is the expectation that the defense this year is going to be you know maybe more of that experienced unit, maybe more of a that type of unit that can carry the team at times? Yeah, that, that's the hope. But the issue that, that they have now is P.J. Johnson, who is their best interior lineman. He, he has a kid, has a family, and he decided uh, to declare for the NFL draft. And, and so they lost their best defensive lineman. Derek Bowles graduated. So now they're replacing their entire interior defensive line. And, and they went and got Juco guys, and they're huge. So, so the size isn't an issue, but it'll, it'll depend on how they perform. If they play well, Arizona will be fine. But if they're not good and they can't re- – replace Bowles and Johnson, the Arizona defense is going to struggle again. And the good thing is they're, they're expected to get Jace Whitaker back. He's their best corner, and he pretty much missed all last season with a shoulder injury. And if he's healthy, the secondary will be better. Um, they still have the strong linebacking core with Schooler, Fields, and those guys. But uh, to me, that defense is going to come down to the defensive line. If those Juco guys aren't good or don't do what Arizona needs them to do, uh, Arizona is really going to struggle defensively again, especially because that depth really isn't that much better uh, than it was last season. They've lost some guys on that side of the ball to transfer. And that, that was a huge deal with me last season is uh, I felt that when Arizona struggled defensively, there was nowhere else to turn to. Uh, they really struggled with depth, especially quality depth. And I'm not sure how much better that is this season. The uh, Wildcats had the 56th uh, ranked uh, recruiting class in the country, 10th in the pac 12. Um, how would you assess the class then, is uh what's what's been the impact on the transfer portal? Guys leaving or or Arizona trying to bring some guys in? What's going on uh, that that side of it? It, it? It might sound silly to some, but I like the class because it, it met needs. And a lot of times, like Rich Rodriguez, for instance, didn't recruit to need. He just kind of got a bunch of athletes on the offensive side of the ball. And if they needed a corner, but there's a good wide receiver out there, he went with the wide receiver. And someone came and said, "All right, we need." this many defensive linemen and he went Juco and he got numerous defensive linemen, the Juco route. He went the Juco route to get an offensive lineman because that's what they needed. They needed receivers. He went and got Jalen Curry, a borderline four-star wide receiver who, who I like quite a bit. Uh, they needed a, a corner slash safety. They went and got Bobby Wolf, another borderline four-star guy who, who I think is going to play considerably as a freshman. So they went and even though the class isn't that highly rated, they got guys who are going to compete uh, to play right away. And, uh, the, the issue is once they landed that class, they lost quite a few guys to transfer. They, they lost Michael Elatisse on the offensive line, who was supposed to be a rotation guy. And none of these guys that they lost were starters, but it hurts depth. And so what they have to do now is they got to go in the transfer portal. And then I think they want another offensive lineman. I, the defensive lineman, they were looking at this guy named Roe Wilkins, defensive lineman out of Rice, that 
he chose ASU, and that was kind of a, a hit to Arizona for depth reasons. So they're not done by any means. I could see them landing two or even three more guys. They have to. Um, the class is good. I like guys like Curry. I think Grant Gannell is going to be good. Uh, Jalen Johnson's a wide receiver out of Southern California. They like quite a bit. Uh, Wolf, who I mentioned, but uh, it, it's just the depth isn't there, and you can't address that with one recruiting class. This next recruiting class is going to be just supported. So what they're going to do is they're going to try to get bigger on the defensive and offensive line and kind of kind of put some Band-Aids on a few positions that they need some more depth in. What's the uh, what's the sense in the fan base of the job Kevin Sumlin has done so far? Um, you know, obviously five and seven last year. Um, you know, I, some improvements certainly, and probably got unlucky in some games. Um, uh, but what what is the sense of things? And um, you know, he he was coming in expected to be you know maybe upgrade recruiting a little bit. And you're and obviously you're correct. He's he's recruiting the needs a little bit more, but um, have are the fans feeling any kind of unrest at this point? Is there still a sense of patience out there? What's, what's the feeling? Yeah. Arizona fans aren't patient. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Basketball and football. So uh, there's no patience going on. They, they need to see major improvement this season. The recruiting thing that I, I think people kind of get, you got kind of a late start um, relationship. He, he's coaching staff and, and so I think people are, are waiting for this class and to see, it. in my opinion, I think this class will be better than the last one. I think it has to be, uh, but I expect this class to be better. Uh, in terms of results, they need to make a bowl. I don't think people want even a six win. I, I think people expect this team to be better, um, especially defensively. And I think that two things really are at play here. Number one, it goes back to Khalil Tate. Everyone saw this explosive quarterback. And then this season there were games where Arizona struggled uh, offensively against better teams, and it, 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 it wasn't an exciting brand of football. And even when Rich Rodriguez was losing, they were losing putting up points. And, and I think that uh, Arizona fans, if, if Arizona's going to lose, they at least want to be entertained. And, and there were a lot of games this year uh, that were just flat-out boring because Arizona didn't play an exciting brand of football when it, it probably had the last few years. And then uh, defensively, Kevin Sumlin kept Marcel Yates, and and his seat is probably hotter than anyone's right now in, in Tucson. And uh, fans generally, they kind of wanted someone to get rid of Yates. And uh, I think this is a big year for him. And he has a two-year contract. This is the second year. So if he doesn't do well, my guess is Arizona moves on. But he's a guy that, that someone retained. And he retained him for a reason. Um, they've had a pre-existing relationship. And so if that defense isn't better, um, I think people are going to be pretty mad. Uh, that Probably that someone kept Yates, even though he kind of had to. Um, but they'll be mad at Yates, and then I would expect Arizona to move on if that defense isn't better. But uh, I think fans want to see a more exciting brand of football, and I think they want to see an improved defense. And with that, probably come a, a couple wins. And I think if Arizona goes like seven and five and makes a decent bowl, I think fans will generally be happy in season two. Last, last excuse me, last year there was a lot of talk about. Um... So I guess the lack of access uh, where like Herm Edwards comes in and it's like open media, whatever you want. And then Kevin Sumlin was kind of like the exact opposite. Did he kind of back off that a little bit or did he open things up a little bit more? Or has it still been kind of the same thing? And what do you expect for this spring? No, I expect to see the, the same uh, exact thing. And uh, like, for instance, we don't even have the practice schedule. All I know is the first one is March 18th. We don't have a schedule at all we have no idea what our access will be but uh, i don't expect it to be good access he chose the players that we talked to and 
I haven't heard that anything's going to change. Um, I don't really know the reason. I, I guess the reason he does it is because he can. Um, but, it, but it was frustrating from our perspective because, like, people will be asking who's performing well and all that, and you kind of get a, have to get a second, third-hand type of deal because we were only allowed in one or two practices, and um, it, it's frustrating from our angle. But he's a, he's a very private guy. Doesn't comment on injuries. Um, other coaches do. Doesn't give any access whatsoever to, to spring ball. Maybe you get a practice. Uh, picks who you talk to. No freshmen. You can't talk to any freshman the entire season. Can't talk to any position coaches except for the spring. So once we talk to him in the spring, we don't talk to him uh, again, even Mazzoni and, and Yates for the rest of the year at all. So uh, it's frustrating from that perspective, but supposedly that's how he ran things at Texas A&M also. Yeah, that's it's 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 I'll say it for you. It's very dumb. It's counterproductive. <laughs> it's It's just very stupid. And a lot of coaches are doing it more and more. And it's so dumb. It doesn't make any sense. UCLA doesn't allow any assistance to talk ever. It's just dumb, 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 dumb stuff. Anyway, um, with that, um, can you, I don't know, rattle off a few names of guys who maybe haven't made a huge impact to this point for Arizona that you're expecting to step into bigger roles this year that you think, you know, maybe could you know, step out and surprise some people this year? Yeah, there's, there's a few guys. I, I don't know if there's a lot of newcomers that are necessarily going to have bigger roles. Uh, defensive lineman Nahe Salunga is a guy that I probably keep an eye on. He played a little bit at the end of last season, and you take a look up the depth on the defensive line, and, and I could see him playing a little bit more. Um, there's going to be an offensive lineman, Robert Congle. Uh, he started for someone as a true freshman walk-on. He redshirted because of the transfer rule. I, I expect him to start. Um, but for, for a lot of it, there, besides wide receiver, there's a lot of guys that are returning, and I think that they're just mostly going to rely on those guys. All right. Jason Shear, we wish you the best. I know you're probably not going to watch a lot of those practices. Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe uh, he'll come around and let you guys watch them, talk to some players and stuff. But if not, you know, best of luck to you. Try to figure out what's going on from your sources and everything. Yeah, I've always thought maybe I should just, like, make up stuff and then because no one knows if it's right or wrong. But, well, and, you know. and then they'll have to talk to you, right? Because they'll be mad that you made stuff well, up, and then they'll be like, hey, Jason, no, here's the actual story. Exactly. It, yeah. That's the next level thinking. We like it. All right, Jason Shear, follow him on Twitter, at Jason Shear. Uh, thanks again, Jason, for coming on. It's always great stuff. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jason. All right, couple good guests uh, today, David. Get to talk a lot of Arizona centric talk today. I think uh, so. We still got to do, uh, I guess, Colorado and Utah, right in the south. Yeah, we have to do Colorado, Utah, and then I think we have to do. We've done Cal and Stanford. We've done Oregon. We need to do Oregon State. We and need to do Washington. We need to do Washington State. All right, so we'll uh, we'll get those lined up as. Spring rolls along. I think it's working out all right. We get to talk, you know, it's, I, we get more in depth each week. So I think that's better. One or two schools or a school and, you know, uh, a, a special guest. So we're uh, we're bringing it this offseason, man. Like a, a real show suddenly. <laughs> we're a real boy. That's great. <laughs> it's not just the, we're not just getting the participation trophy, which that's that's the biggest trophy we got is the participation trophy. Like we talked, talked. that was last off season. That was last off season where literally every week we congratulated ourselves on doing another show. Um, and we haven't been quite that obnoxious this time around. And we're actually putting out good shows. Yeah. They're not bad. 
Look, don't pay attention to the Disney princesses conversation from last week. You don't have to. That that came from the people, though. That was a request. So. It was a question from the people, but I don't think anybody wanted that box opened. Like once that was opened, it couldn't be closed until we had finished and we had gone through every single Disney movie that has yeah. ever existed. Right. Which you have a much better grasp than I. Holy crap. Holy crap. But understandable man. because you got little kids, so. No, I mean, yes, but no, like it's understandable, but like, obviously I've clearly invested a little bit of time in the plot lines. So that's, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Well, should we, uh, jump into questions? Not a ton this week. Um, no, no, I think people were dumbfounded by last week. Um, it was a yeah, little... we got to start with, uh, our man, Chris from soul. Want me to start with that one? Yeah, that sounds good. Transfer scenario. First and foremost, never, never answer a question that includes Disney princesses. Well, then I'm not answering this question, right? <laughs> it's included. See what I did there, Chris? See? Uh, or amphibians, for that matter. It is ferocious to listen to. I wish I was this clever, but found this on The Athletic and thought you guys were much better positioned to respond than Stuart Mandel. If Jacob Eason and Justin Fields meet in the national championship, would the state of Georgia burn itself to the ground? Credit to Jonathan G. Mm. So why would you think so, we are so, better positioned to respond than Stuart Mandel, who's like a national, you know. Maybe he's not a big Stu fan. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um. So are we talking like. So basically we're asking if 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 there will be a a Sherman march through the state of Georgia if <laughs> Jacob Eason and Justin Fields meet in the national championship game. Yeah, I mean, but I think I feel like Georgia likes their quarterback, right? Like I think yeah, this is the thing. Is it if Georgia was bad, yeah. Yeah, I think it would burn itself to the ground. It's like if, you know, if randomly when, when UCLA and USC were both dog crap this past year and there were two five-star California quarterbacks playing in the national championship game that neither of those schools like or they had but then transferred out or whatever, I think both schools would be pretty pissed off. Yeah. But like Georgia's like 11-1 and one every year. They're like in the playoff every other year. Like, I mean, I, they're doing fine. Jake Fromm, yeah. he's great. Um, yeah, like so, if, if Fromm like broke his leg on the first day or something, or you know, but I, I feel like they moved on for you know a reason. Um, yeah, you know, and it's tough when you have a young starting quarterback that like takes you into the playoffs and you know does good things. You, you know, you you get behind them, so I, I think it would be maybe there'd be a little bit of irony or something, but I don't think they would be all that pissed. Yeah, I don't. I think it would be more like. So it's not quite civil war in Georgia. Like it wouldn't be Sherman marching through and burning the whole area um, in like this, you know, really cleansing fire um, to, to burn out slavery. It would be more like the American Revolution in Georgia. Like a couple of battles wouldn't be great. Wouldn't be lovely. A little bit of pillaging, but not burning itself to the ground. Uh, I I just actually spent Chris from Seoul. Great stuff, by the way. Um, I uh, I guess he has another part to it, but I spent I was in your your state this past weekend. Yeah. Uh, yep. 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 For uh, Savannah, Georgia, for a wedding, and I've never, never been. And uh, it was—I mean, it was so quaint, and uh, everything was pretty. And they—they they have the—I didn't know this. It's the second or third. I guess they argue with Chicago. Uh, the second or third largest uh, St. Patrick's Day celebration in the country, yeah. outside of Boston. 
And like they were already, so it's over a week away. Like they had a ceremony on Saturday to turn the fountain green. They had like everyone in the, you know, the town representatives show up and they have, you know, it's like, it's like this huge freaking deal. And people are, you know, their, their tourists are already arriving dressed out in St. Patrick's day stuff. And it was like, that's next weekend. Like it's insane. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know how that started, but uh, it was. But I, I loved. It. I mean, it was a really neat uh, town to visit. I've never been there. Um, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. You got to check Atlanta. it out. Yeah, I haven't been. I haven't been yet. I've uh, been sticking to Atlanta. Um, it's like a four-hour drive yes. from you, right? Something like that. From not too bad. It's about a month's march um, <laughs> if you're going by. The march to the sea. How much um, hardtack is in your backpack that could sustain you the whole way? Or well, you live <laughs> off the land, you know. Um, <laughs> you 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 rob, you um, you burn, and uh, you generally sow a path of destruction on your way. You know, I think there should be reenactments of the the march to the sea, like every five to ten years, like actual, like not like, like people march, not like a fake reenactment, <laughs> but like doing the actual thing, like just burning everything along the way. I think I think the South generally would be improved. Keep your um, keep your powder dry. Is that the? I don't know. Yeah. And then the second part of Chris's question, my build as a second question would, but would the state of Oregon also burn itself to the ground? Um, I mean, just because. Washington would be playing in the national championship game. I guess. Um, yeah. The other fields is from, uh, he's, is he from Georgia? I forget where. I'm pretty sure he's from Georgia. Let's, yeah. let's look. I thought he's he was from Kennesaw. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. from, he's I thought from he was from Georgia and then, yeah. And then, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, Oregon and Washington, if I, I think maybe because like if Jacob Eason is like the the key, like where they, it, it just shows that how bad Jake Browning was and like the the offense just everything's just so much better with a guy like Jacob Eason there. I think Oregon would be pretty pissed because they're the they're the hype team, they're the team that everyone's talking about. But if like Jacob Eason takes Washington from like you know good slash great to you know amazing side kind of team, I think Oregon would be pretty upset. Yeah. Yeah, because that would also mean that um, exactly what you said, uh, that it really was Browning was the limiting factor and, and the, 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 the ceiling on the uh, Chris Peterson era would be officially removed. Uh, so, yeah, I think Oregon would burn itself to the ground. I think you're right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we're just being a little dramatic, but uh, they wouldn't be happy. Um, it's not the first time we've been dramatic. No. Uh, I, I want to see I want to see Justin Herbert look like what everyone told me, like all the NFL people I talked to, when you saw him at Pac-12 Media Day last year, everyone was just like, oh man, this guy's going to be, you know, the bomb. So I'm, I'm expecting big things uh, this year from him. And th- do you remember me? Do you remember me towards the end of the season saying I didn't think there was much chance at all that he would go in the NFL draft and you scoffed at me? I did. And you, did. Uh, you were yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, very mm-hmm. nice. Hey, it's be- the one time. Let me <laughs> let me shout it out. It's the one time I've been correct. It happens once a year. I would like to acknowledge it. Thank yeah, you. Because normally you are ferocious. But you know now, that was good. That was a good call. Um, we have a question from Scott David. He said, uh, "Questions, Ryan and Dave. Thanks for the podcast and taking all the ridiculous off-season questions. Uh, you've been asked about bust lately, so I was curious." Is there a common reason 
players turn out to be busts, simply overrated, burnout by college, pick the wrong program, personnel problems, etc. Not sure if Ryan can uh, slash wants to answer this. Oh, okay. I guess we'll start with that. The first part. Yeah. I kind of think uh, it's a combination of things. Like there's t- like, if you just remember yourself growing up, um, you know, were you better than people athletically at some point and then plateaued? I think you see that a lot. Like if you like, wow, I was really good in eighth grade. And by the time I got to be a junior, like everyone was bigger and stronger and faster than me. And I didn't get any, you know, better or whatever. Like if I think that happens quite a bit, um, I think you get a lot of exposure and if someone's really good, they're like sophomore and junior year, but there's, I, I think the key is you've got to find the upside there. Like, if it, is this it? Are they dominating like, you know, inferior competition? Um, can they take the next level or, or are they, you know, when they move up a level or is it going to be, uh, you know, just a disaster? And I, we've seen people, the transition from one level to another is like the key for me all the time. So like I, I remember Sarah High School watching uh, George Farmer and Marquise Lee. And George Farmer was the bigger, uh, you know, prospect and everything. And he made more plays in high school and he was bigger and stronger. But something about Marquise Lee, he made the transition like it almost like he instantly got better. Like he needed to get out of whatever environment, not saying Sarah has a bad environment, but he had, you know, some issues kind of growing up. And I, it seemed like just putting him in college changes everything for him. And he just like, you know, he was just shot out of a cannon where George Farmer just seemed to kind of like was the same as he was in high school and never really got uh, better than that. So I, I think those transitions can be tough sometimes. Sometimes you go to a five-star guy comes in and they have to redshirt and it just takes them a little while to kind of get used to it. And some guys just don't. And they, they relied on a lot of things that they could do in high school that they can't do in college. And I think that's a, a one of the big reasons why we see some busts. I don't know what you think, Dave. I think that's probably why, um, on the purely evaluation scale, why that happens. Um, I, I think if you're ruling out injuries, like I don't think you can classify a guy who gets hurt as a bust. I would say uh, certainly mindset, maturity, um, approach, like those things really do play into it. And I don't know that those are properly evaluated at the high school level. And frankly, it's hard. Um, I know I was a complete dumbass in college, like complete and utter dumbass doing dumb things that I didn't do in high school and didn't really do for more than a couple years after college. And largely it was because college is like, I mean, it's kind of hedonistic. It's kind of just a dumb country club for 18 year olds, the way it's structured these days. And, um, your brain isn't fully formed. I mean, you're not fully, it's not fully you know, you're not really working with the rational part of your brain until you're like 25, 26. Um, and so I think it, 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 some kids maybe have a little bit more maturity. And so they're more willing to put in the work like Marquis Lee. He always had that, right? He was always working hard. A guy like Juju Smith, another, I'm just naming off USC guys right now, but whatever. Uh, Juju Smith always had that. He was always working hard going back to high school. And I don't know if that was maturity or if it was just the way he was, initially wired where he was just, you know, that's, that's his single minded focus or whatever. But I think a lot of guys who bust out, they just weren't ready for the rigors of that. And maybe it would have been better if they had done whatever the equivalent of their culture's version of a mission is or something where they did something else for three or four years and got some maturity before they went into school. But I've seen a lot of guys bust out because 
frankly, they liked the college experience more than they liked the rigor of playing football. And I get that because I was that. I mean, I didn't I, I didn't like going to class. And so I was a dumbass. And I, I think there's because it has so much of a impact on their future earnings, especially for athletes who play football and basketball. Um there's this onus on them that doesn't necessarily exist for Joe student to be mature at that age, but it does require a a significant level of maturity to put in dedicated hours every week and huge numbers of hours. Like if you're doing, if you're doing uh, if you're, if you're playing for a football program the right way in FBS, you're probably putting in, I don't know, 40 or 50 hours a week, easy on just the football aspect of it between practices workouts, studying your playbook, all this kind of stuff. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot to ask of an 18 year old, um, in today's society. And I know there's probably going to be a bunch of, you know, of older folks who are saying, Oh, when I was 18, I had a job, but that's just, I mean, it's first great. That's great for you. But uh, I, I think the maturity level of, of people is, uh, not necessarily what it was on a one-to-one scale the way it used to be. Um, I think it does. I think that's. I think that's maybe what I'm coming around to being one of the primary reasons is some guys just aren't ready for the rigors of that, and it's a tough thing to assess out of high school. And uh, some guys bust out because they like to party or they like to smoke pot or whatever it is, and all this stuff that is completely accepted for average students. That'll you know it, it might get you passing with a C in college, but it's you know going to get you washed out of being a potential pro prospect. Yeah, no, I I agree with all that. It's. I mean, just think your own time in college, like, like David was saying, it's just, it's different for everyone. Did you, you know, how many people did, you know, went to college and dropped out and it's, it's not for everybody. Um, especially you're talking about, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a foreign concept. So it, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, but I think all of the other aspects too, sometimes it could be the wrong program where maybe you're not getting the kind of support that, that you would need that you might get somewhere else or dealing with a coach or, you, you know, you get buried on the depth chart and you get, you know, you're upset and you stop working out and then you're, you're not going to be as good as you could be. So I, I think there's a lot of, uh, reasons for stuff like that to happen, but interesting question. Um, he said, not sure if, if Ryan Canner wants to answer this, Ryan, I'm not familiar with Lendell white outside of having a pretty good career at USC. Uh, why do you, does he have problems with USC and Pete Carroll? And why is he often not talked about as one of the best running backs from USC? Um, I had Lendale on my podcast a couple years ago. I think it was, he was, he had some sort of feud, like at a game with, uh, Pat Hayden, the athletic director at the time. So he was kind of pissed off. He was actually doing like some kind of live show with another football player. I forget who it was. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he's the all time leading touchdown. (laughs) He's got 52 touchdowns in his career. Like no one's ever like, that's the, the record for USC. Um, so he's, I think he's definitely talked about it. You know, it's hard to be one of the best when you didn't win a Heisman because they have a lot of running backs that did, but, uh, he's, he's certainly up there and I talked to him about it. He, you know, that's another thing, making a jump from high school to college. You're making a jump from, from college to the NFL. He told me straight out. I mean, he was, he was running at like 250, 260 pounds at USC. He didn't need to be that big, but he could still do it and he could still dominate at that level. But it wasn't able. He wasn't able to do that. At you know, you go up to the next level. It's like, what's the Peter Principle where you get promoted to your level of incompetence or whatever? Like, he needed to change some of his habits. I think going into the NFL, and he didn't. He told me like, you know, he got lazy at times and and just thought you could be successful. So 
you know, if he changed his life, like after college, like he could have had a long, I think he could have had a long career in the NFL. That wasn't about his ability. That was just more about how he approached it. And I think, you know, he would admit that to this day. Yeah, I think Uh, that's right. I asked this during the season and you said it is an off season question. So what are the best nicknames you've heard for each school? Okay. So that he puts example, uh, I, uh, I just and I just tweeted this out, um, so hopefully we'll get some responses. Oh, uh, U dollar sign SC, FUCLA, UW, etc. Um, what is any on the top of your head? No, no, no. I've I've tweeted it out, so we'll share whatever we get in response to this later. Um, but we we tried to think of this last time, and we're both dumb, so we didn't. There's like the so the Oregon one is like the zero championships, like people do that, like the the zeros or whatever. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, spoiled children, USC. Uh, what? There. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch. But yeah, okay. So we'll see if anyone. Uh, I'll retweet that and then see what. Did you you tweet it? Okay, let's see if anyone. Responds. I tweeted it from POC. Okay, I'll see if anybody uh, wants to come up with something cool uh, for that. So he said, "Thanks again. Keep up the great work." Well, thanks, Scott. That was awesome. Thank you, Scott. All right, we've got GSP Runner. POC question, academic calendars. Ryan and Dave, thank you sincerely for your efforts with the POC. The podcast is very entertaining week in and week out. Thank you, GSP Runner. Uh, my question for you relates to schools having significant, significantly different academic calendars. USC will start the fall semester on August 26th this year prior to their first football game. Other schools like UCLA and Washington are on the quarter system and will not not start classes until September 25th or 26th. This would appear to give quarter system schools an advantage as players get to focus on football only through the first several games of the season, while most schools are in class before the season begins. How big is this advantage for football teams on the quarter system? Nice. Cheers, GSP runner. Um, Do you ever, like, did you, before we get into this, do you ever like when people, you know, we deal with message boards a lot, right? So people have their handles. If you meet them at a tailgate, sometimes they'll say, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm banner 11 or whatever, you know, like, I'm, like whatever their brewing like, uh, handle is on the, on, on bro, you know? Um, so to sign it GPS runner, is that different? Like what, we don't really have like a message board. There's not like handles people are using on our site. Maybe yeah, I don't, that, that is interesting. Could it be one that he uses on like the 24, like whoever he's a fan of, like if he's a UCLA fan, like that's what his bro one is or dog man, that's what he goes by, you know, whatever. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's on a few different boards. I don't know. Usually when people have a thing like that, it's they, they do have some sort of, I don't know, uh, that is their like handle on various things. I, I can't speak for GSP runner, but. That would be my guess. I would kind of like to know, like, if he's like, uh, you know, he's like corporate finance or something, and he sends an email out about the latest audit, and he signs it GPS runner. <laughs> I think that would be great. That is great. That would be great. <laughs> um. All right. So quarter system versus semester system. Um. There are trade offs. UCLA uh, doesn't really have classes during non conference play ever. Um, and so that is, I think, a benefit in some respects. Uh, obviously, the guys don't have as many um, demands on their time during that period. It's pretty much all football. Um, but there aren't students in school. Um, the Rose Bowl is generally even more empty than usual 
during those September games. Um, so that, I don't know how much of an effect that has, but whatever minimal effect it does, it's, it's probably not a positive one. And then um, the other issue is that the academic schedule is then compressed. Um, so you're basically doing um, a lot in 10 weeks. And so the classes are a little bit more demanding in that time frame um, than something, you know, kind of going out over a whole semester. And for I know for guys immediately going into it for freshmen, that can be a much bigger adjustment than a semester school. Semester school feels a little bit more like what you were doing in high school quarter system is wholly new. And so you can't, you kind of, and especially for football where you have so many demands on your time, you kind of have to be organized and ready to go from the minute you start. And uh, a lot of freshmen over the years have kind of gotten behind because of that. Um, I would say on the whole, it's probably an advantage, but I would say not, not as significant one as just the pure getting games before school would indicate. Yeah, no, I, I, I've only been semester system like my whole life. I've never, but I've, when you see that, you're like, wow, that seems like a big deal where you can go through all the fall camp without, you know, and I, are, are summer school going on then? Or do they, is that? They do summer school. I, I think they do summer session, the first summer session, but they're typically, I think, unless there's something special going on, they're not doing the second summer session. So it's sort of I like. Think. Yeah. So I, I like a lot of times when the, like when I'm covering USC, the players report, they're going through like two summer sessions, but I guess because you're, there's almost like no time off. Like you get a couple weeks off in between, but I think it gets a little bit more, it's a little spread out. It's not as, you know, concentrated. Um, so like you said, yeah, like it's nice to have those first few weeks off, but then you're getting like concentrated classes for conference play. So that, you know, maybe that's, you know, I guess that's part of the trade-off. Yeah, I think that is. Um, and then I think beyond that, I don't think there's much effect. I mean, the spring stuff is basically the same. I mean, I know UCLA's weird quarter system is making them have a break in the middle of spring practice, but I don't think that's a big deal at all. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I'd say it's probably a net minor positive, um, but there are some trade-offs. Yeah, uh, but it's, it, it does seem so different though like it's almost like is that i don't say it's like fair unfair like one side or the other but it does seem like it's not an even playing field and i'm not sure which side has the advantage but it seems like that's it's so different to like i I, I don't think there's any question the quarter schools do have an advantage um but i just yeah i mean it but it's but then you go back to well what are they going to do i mean change the football schedule change their academic schedule there'd be a riot there would be a riot at these Pac-12 institutions if they changed the academic schedule. Um, so, I mean, I think that's kind of one of those baked-in weirdnesses that just college football is going to have to take. Like, that's just something that's going to be there. But it is – I do think it has some some small effect on competitive balance when, you know, uh, the, the UCLA-Washington quarter system schools, they can basically treat it more or less like their job for a month when other um, – other schools have to split time. Um, all right. This next one, I'm going to warn you, David, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be significant. Um, oh, are, God. are you ready for me to, uh, <laughs> Oh God, I was born ready. Okay. So here we go. Um, this is packed 12 princess and ACC blue bloods from, uh, our buddy Hector. What up, Ryan and Dave? How are my, Two favorite non-lovable losers. Wow. I think you just call this losers. 
not only losers, but not the lovable kind of losers. That's like a double. Yeah, he's yeah. just calling us losers. Just straight out losers that nobody likes. Just. Great pod as usual. But I have to disagree with your take on USC as some mythical blue blood that the conference can't live without. When blue bloods are in down cycles, other schools have opportunity to claim territory and establish their programs. I present to you Clemson and the ACC. Florida State and Miami are both struggling where Clemson has won two national championships. By any measurement, Clemson was never considered a blue blood before Dabo arrived seven years ago. They do have a national championship in my lifetime. Um, There's tons of tradition there. It's not like, I don't think Clemson is some upstart program, but uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, Ah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't, and I don't, I wouldn't classify, I mean, Florida State is very recently struggling, but I don't know about yeah. consistently. I'd, I'd put Miami more in the, you know, maybe struggling and maybe they have more, because I've read interesting stuff about Miami's budget stuff. They might have some trouble competing in the long term because um, they're not like a school that has, predict, has uh, consistently paid a lot of money for coaches. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. I, I think Clemson is not was not a blue bud before Dabo, but they were like not, I don't know. They weren't bad. It was no, a good program. Yeah. Um, it, it's not like they were Oregon State or something. Like this is not. This, I mean, this they would, they would be the, maybe the equivalent of Washington, which Washington has done well. Like it's fine. Like Washington won a national title in 1990 or whatever, right? Like what Clemson won in like 80, I think, or something, but. Washington was 91, but yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And I, I also think Hector is kind of mischaracterizing the argument about USC. I mean, uh, taking it to a hyperbole standpoint, but like, it's not that the conference can't live without them. I mean, the conference has done pretty well without them at different points where USC has been mediocre. It's just that when USC is elite, it raises the upside of the conference as a whole. Um, it's I I think it's more maybe this is my own impression of it, but I think it's more possible for a an elite USC to coexist with other elite teams in the conference um, than it is for maybe it's easier for that to happen than it is for any other kind of coexisting relationship because USC just there's an L, there's a set there's a there's a quality of recruit out there who considers USC but maybe or historically considers USC that maybe doesn't consider any other school in the Pac-12. And so when USC is operating at that super elite level and they're pulling in those kind of guys, whoever they may be, they could be West Coast guys who would otherwise go to, you know, Alabama or whatever. Um, but when USC is operating at that level, they're pulling in guys who, you know, wouldn't necessarily fall to another Pac-12 program. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's my sense of why USC in like a real like hard, hard facts way um, improves the upside of the conference just because their recruiting profile is it's just a different thing elite usc versus mediocre usc it's just it's so different from uh, what they can do david's love affair with the usc trojans continues on here on the podcast of champions i mean i hate it it's it's <laughs> got it it's a waking nightmare but what are you gonna do <laughs> okay so here's the weird part lastly I wanted to share my take on the Pac-12 Princess lineup. Keep up the good work and go dogs. Okay. So he gives very detailed analysis of all the Pac-12 Princesses, but at least I'm, I think this is like well thought out. So we'll have some good reasons behind this. And uh, Dave, you have to agree or disagree. Sure. So for Washington, Moana, he said, easy one here. 
UW has a huge poly community and the OKG family first culture. Just like the movie, the program was isolated and cut off, but has been awoken by the chosen one, a.k.a. Chris Peterson. Does that make sense? We're to mixing you? the metaphor, but I like it. I, I think it's I, it's what I it's what I landed on um, at the end when our brains had melted. But I think Moana for UW checks out. Washington State, Merida. Do you know who that one Merida. is? Merida. Merida. Okay. That is uh, that is the uh, the the girl from Brave. Oh, never She's saw a Scottish that. girl. Oh, Scottish yeah. girl. Merida. Okay. Uh, oddball and unconventional, but deadly accurate. Sounds like a leech offense to me. I like it. Yeah, I think it applies. Um, she has a scene in the movie where she uh, shoots her arrow. It's that classic kind of, you know, the the archery movie where the arrow splits the other arrow that is in the target already. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, deadly accurate. Yeah, so, I like it. Is Merida, that sort of like Merida a, for Washington State. Was that like a Hunger Games kind of like thing ish? Like, the, the, I mean, it's the it's a, it's a trope. I, I, the first time I probably saw it was in Robin Hood, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of all over the place. No, no, I meant like this was this movie like sort of like a no, cur- no, 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 no. This is a this is a Scottish movie about Scottish myths of um, various people turning into bears um, due to I don't know witches curses and stuff, and oh. then it's a it's a little girl's relationship with her mother and how that evolves and grows over time and how there's conflict. And then eventually they come to an understanding that they're not so different and the mother just wants the best for Merida. And, you know, it's just, it's a lovely story and I think you should enjoy it. Okay. Uh, Oregon State. (laughs) A tale as old as time. That's a different one. Crap. Okay. Oregon State. Uh, Anna from Frozen. Much more famous and talented. uh, Excuse me. Excuse me. It's Anna. Oh, Anna. Anna. Sorry. Anna from Frozen. No, it's fine. Much more famous and talented sister, OSU is the little sister in its state. So, okay. I think that's fair. Is Anna the one with the powers or no? That the other one. No, no. Anna. Anna, Anna is the one who isn't special. Okay. Um, she doesn't have um, ice flowing out of her fingers. Um, and she's kind of daffy. So. Gotcha. Uh, fine. Uh, that's Oregon State. That's fine. I think you could make Anna any of the lesser parts of any of these uh, two team relationships. But yes, Anna's fine there. Okay. For Oregon, Cinderella, you nailed this one. Poor, plain, and unnoticed until their fairy shoe dog millionaire bought them all the shiny things. Also relevant as they turned back into pumpkin at midnight. I think I. Yep. That seems right. I think I came up with that one. Uh, Cal Rapunzel. Weird introvert with Stockholm syndrome from being stuck in an ivory tower. Can't relate to others. Berkeley has plenty of those. Hmm. Hmm. I think that checks out. That's fine. I feel like he's getting little shots at the schools he doesn't like here, but you know, we're, he took the time. So we're going to read them. Uh, Stanford is, is bell bell from beauty and the beast was the only, he, he explains that one, but not Marita or whatever. Uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast was the only person in her village that loved to read that Stanford's nerd all day. Yeah, that's and that's the one reading this. I'm I'm struck by us screwing up the Stanford one because that's obvious. Belle, the literally the only quality she has is that she loves to read. That is the only personality quality personality quality she gets. Uh, So, yes, obviously, that's Stanford. Okay, Uh, UCLA is Aurora. Uh, don't know who that one is. Old money, talent never realized, an absolute waste of resources. She's basically asleep waiting for a man to save her. Sounds like Westwood to me. Wait, so what's Aurora is sleeping beauty, you you plebe. 
Oh, Th- that's Sleeping Beauty. I did, okay. I don't know. Does she come I mean, from old money? Like, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen that movie in God so long. But yeah, I mean, old money, talent never realized an absolute waste of resources. She's basically asleep waiting for a man to save her. I mean, that's dead on. I mean, he completely fully nailed that one, so I can't complain. I can't. That, Aurora UCLA is. How different is Sleeping Beauty than Snow White? Like Sleeping Beauty was. Oh, it's a it's a completely different story. So no dwarves in Sweep Sleeping Beauty. No, it's the one where I think the dude has to fight the dragon. Uh, like the witch turns into a dragon, and then he has oh, to. Oh, okay. Is that right? It's been a while. I mean, I don't. You know. I don't know. USC. Don't know. Speaking of Snow White, USC is Snow White. The OG blue blood of the group had it all until they ate the poison apple. In this case, the apple is either Sanctions in 2011 or Clay Helton. Like that seems that. fine. That's I like that. Uh, Utah's Pocahontas, uh, even though uh, fits with Utah being the Utes, still works on a deeper level. Yeah, I guess probably should have thought about like your team's oh, named yeah. after an Indian uh-huh. tribe, uh-huh. like maybe a small tribe thrust into a new world outgunned by white dudes with guns. Uh, sounds like a group of five entering a power conference to me. Jesus. <laughs> this is getting dark. Okay. Getting dark. Uh, I, I would just stuck with Pocahontas. <laughs> like there's like the Indian yeah. thing. There. Yeah. Maybe not the, okay. Uh, Colorado, Elsa, Snow Queen with powers they don't quite understand much. Reminds me of the buffs who have had previous glory and looking to get back. Um, yeah, that one's kind of weak. Weak effort there. Okay. Uh, Arizona. Tiana. Uh, do you know who that one is? That's Prin- Princess and the Frog. Okay. Uh, non-royalty, self-made uh, gritty. Doesn't need a man. UA football is plain Jane, often overlooked by its basketball program. I mean, yeah, these are all true things. I don't know that this necessarily applies to Tiana. So I think this is another weak effort. I think you lost steam here at the end. Okay. And ASU is Ariel. I know that one. ASU is a party school and a bit of a fish out of water amongst all the research schools. Like Ariel Herm is quirky and unconventional. Okay, that's fine. I'll do with that. Hector, hey, I mean, thanks for taking the time, Hector. That was beautiful, Hector. You did a much better job than we ever did. That's what we want because when you put us on the spot for that, like we really didn't read this ahead of time. You like try to come up with all that stuff. But if you sit down there and you spend an hour or something like writing it out, yeah, we'll read it. Uh, Hell yeah. All right, you ready for Hitler Day? Oh man, there's graphs. <laughs> the I know. La Defense. Um, that's my French accent. It's not good. Um, I appreciated your spring previews of USC and UCLA, but for understandable reasons, the offenses got most of the attention. And I'd like to hear some more about what you boys thought of the defenses in 2018 and the prospects of improvement next year, David. I liked the Bruins DBs in film study last year, but I didn't think much. M- Munch, munch. Did you know, Ryan, that there is not an N in much? I, I there's not one on my screen. Yours might be different. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but I didn't think much of the front seven, and I was surprised to hear you talk about Chris Barnes as an anchoring returner since you seemed baffled by his good performance against Washington last year. I can't make heads or tails of UCLA's defensive roster. Can you tell me who's leaving and who's expected to step up, and how would you rate the job, Jerry Azanaro? And Don Pelham did. Okay, uh, take these in order. First, I agree with you on the DBs. I thought they did a pretty much bang-up job last year, especially given that there was absolutely no pass rush, so they sort of had to cover on islands quite a bit. 
Chris Barnes got better over the course of the year. I think Washington was maybe one of the first games where he kind of flashed a little bit, but then I thought over the back half of the season, he was more consistent, still had some, you know, issues here and there, but, um, uh, adjusting to a three, four, he, he, he started to come on towards the end of the year. Um, and then, uh, guys expected to leave or guys who are leaving, um, a Darius Pickett is probably, the biggest name to know. Um, he was a uh, starting safety last year, huge run stopper, um, was leading him in tackles basically every game. Um, they'll have to replace him um, with talent. So it's going to be Quentin Lake who played a lot last year and was actually for my money, their best DB through the first three or four games of the year. Um, and Steven Blaylock who's a talented uh, former true freshman. Um, he'll, I think he's, he might still be able to redshirt from last year. I don't know. I don't know how many games he played, but he's either redshirt freshman or sophomore. Um, but he'll be playing at safety um, at linebacker. They return pretty much everybody um, defensive line. Um, they're going to lose Rick Wade, who was uh, a rotation guy for him last year, but they returned pretty much everybody that was playing significant snaps last year. Um, all those true freshman linemen who flashed a little bit, but then also had some inexperience. So, it should be just from an experience standpoint, um, a much better defense this year. Um, all these guys for the, the vast majority of the players all played last year, um, or started last year. So it's, it's a pretty experienced returning group. Um, as for the job as and Pelham did, I would give as probably like a C C plus he had, a, there were a lot of injuries. Uh, there were a lot of issues. Um, you know, losing Jalen Phillips early on, he was probably their one plus pass rusher. Um, and without him, they really didn't have somebody who was good at beating people individually on the end. Great deal of losses about the one guy on your South. Um, so kind of operating at a deficit there. He responded to it, I thought, in maybe a little bit of a foolhardy way by trying to blitz a little bit too much at inopportune moments, just not great situational awareness of when to blitz. Um, and I thought they would have been better playing some sort of sagging bend, but don't break type thing. And I know it's awful to watch for people, but it might've been more successful because they allowed just a few too many big plays over the course of the season. Don Pelham, I thought did a poor job. Um, but, uh, that that's also clouded by, I think when you're talking about position coaches and any kind of defense, I think the main thing is recruiting. And I don't think he recruited well at all. Um, from a, position standpoint they just had so many linebacker injuries especially at inside linebacker that it was hard to rate it too significantly barnes got a little bit better over the course of the year tyree thompson got a little bit better over the course of the year and those are the two starting inside backers so i wouldn't knock it too hard but i thought his recruiting was poor enough that that um you know that doesn't reflect well on the whole package there ryan in your indictment of clay helton you mentioned that he chooses comfortability with a coach rather than competence uh I think he just means comfort with a coach rather than competence because comfortability is um, it feels like it's not a word. Um, anyway, I wonder if the USC fan base feels that applies to DC Clancy Pendergast as well. I've included some charts charts of his advanced statistical performance over his career from footballoutsiders.com with labels big enough that you should be able to read them without your cheaters that show at all his stops at D- as DC. He inherits a good defense that then steadily declines until he's fired. What do you think is going on with USC's defense? So he shows a chart uh, pretty steady, I guess, when he was with the Arizona Cardinals. He did go to a Super Bowl with them. Um, They went from, looks like, 
15th or so to about 21st. Um, and there was a dip down to 24 in 2006. Uh, the Cal one was a pretty steady decline um, from uh, somewhere in the teens to the 50s over a two-year span. And then with USC, a top 10 defense to somewhere in the 30s. Um, yeah, there's. I think it's a mixed bag with Clancy Pendergast. I just feel like the offense was so poorly run and it didn't look like there's someone that had a plan. They were just, it was almost like they didn't know what to do. I think you could argue that Clancy Pendergast's scheme is not always the best. I think he he looked he had a claim to fame. I think he did pretty well against uh, Chip Kelly in Oregon when he was at Cal. I think that kind of got him some notoriety. Obviously, you know, going to Super Bowl with Arizona, I'm sure helped too. Um, but I think that he at least comes in there with a, some sort of strategy and play. You feel like okay, he. It might not always be the best plan or works out the best, but he has one. And I don't think USC had that on the offensive side. So I think some people would overlook any deficiencies that were on the defensive side. But they had a significant drop-off in turnovers last year. I mean, they were the, tied for Cle- with Clemson as the number one team as far as getting sacks in 2017. That drop way off. Um, I thought there was significant drop-off. And they had a lot of senior leadership on that defense last year. Now, you could argue the offense you know, they were 90th in the country in scoring. I, I feel like he might get a pass sometimes hit day because they were put in a lot of really bad spots. And I think by the end of the game, uh, it's, it's sort of like USC might score a couple points early and then they just disappear. The offense just goes away. Do you expect the defense to just kind of pick up the slack the whole time? I'd have to go through and look at the advanced stats a little bit more, but I, that's the feeling I got where you're like, yeah, it wasn't always great. They gave up like 300 rushing yards or whatever to UCLA. Uh, that you know wasn't one of the better rushing teams in the in the country. They've, there's weird things like that. What happened when Lane Kiffin got fired? Uh, you know at Arizona State. But I think just in general, it just wasn't as bad as the offense. So that's where a lot of the focus has been. Okay, cool. If that makes sense, it but makes thanks. sense to me. They were easy to read. They were charts, Hitlerday, but they were very simple charts. They were explained. That's perfect. It was beautiful chart work. All right, we've got another Disney princess this morning. You want me to run through this one real quick? Okay, do it real quick because we, you know. All right, this is Brad, a Utah fan in Oregon. Uh, Disney Pacto princesses. Hey, guys, happy to have the podcast back on Monday. Great way to start the week. You did a pretty good job with the Disney princesses, but thought I would give it a try. I know most of them are a stretch, but I think there might be one you like. Washington State. He also goes Merida for okay. Brave. Um, same reasoning. Uh, she's all about archery. Washington State, the air raid. Uh, she's a little hard to understand sometimes. And Mike Leach, when he's not talking about football, he can also be a little hard to follow. So, all right, that all checks out. Washington, he goes to Moana with that one too. Uh, neither he nor Maui, neither her nor Maui could realize their full potential without each other. Washington was okay before Peterson and Peterson was doing good things at Boise, but together they made it to the next level, Pac-12 champions and the national championship. I like it. It doesn't lean on the poly connection. It goes to a different angle, but it still lands on Moana and Washington, uh, Oregon and Oregon state. He also goes Elsa or he goes Anna for Oregon state. And then Elsa for Oregon, which I think is the more proper thing. One has powers. The other is, has orange on her head. Um, <laughs> Cal is Alice from Alice in Wonderland. That's one we didn't get to. And as a kid, when you watch it, you really have no idea what in the world is going on. That was kind of like Cal football last year. The more offense they have and they lose the game, the win against Washington. Okay, that makes sense, actually, because it's kind of topsy-turvy, upside-down. That feels very Alice in Wonderland. 
Um, Stanford is Ariel from The Little Mermaid. She needed a pair of legs, and last year Stanford needed a better running game. Okay, fine. <laughs> fine. That's fine. Colorado, Cinderella from rags to riches back to rags. The story of Colorado football since being in the Pac-12. Unfortunately, McIntyre didn't have a glass slipper to save his job. I like it. That's poetic. Yeah. Utah Snow White, the first Disney princess in Whittingham, is the longest tenured head coach in the Pac-12. The seven dwarves can be all the different offensive coordinators that have been at Utah <laughs> under his tenure. So that's too uh, good. Utah could good, be Brad. Pocahontas too, but I like I like Snow White there. I like that explanation. Snow White for the reasoning definitely gets it. Uh, Arizona, Jasmine from Aladdin. She has a pet tiger, and they are the Wildcats. So yeah, okay, fine. I, I don't remember Jasmine having any personality whatsoever either. Sort of like Belle, so that's fine. Arizona State, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Everyone thought Arizona State had hired a beast, Herm Edwards, but after one season, everyone is now singing a different tune. There might be something there that wasn't there before. That's one of the songs. I think there's something. No, no, no. It's I think there's something there that wasn't there before. I don't okay. think it's, there might be something there. Come on. Don't screw me up here, Brad. All right. USC Rapunzel. Uh, she is royalty with powers, but has been locked away in a tower. Not sure if the head coach is the tower and the AD is Mother Gothel. Either way, until things change at USC, their potential will be locked away. I like that. That's, I think that's pretty good. I think that is pretty good. Yeah. And then he also says Aurora for UCLA, which I think that's consensus at this point. Um, cool good stuff brad nice brad uh that's all our questions do we should we go to twitter and read some of these uh yeah let's do it what do we i mean there's was there a lot i think there was a lot there's a good amount we got i think 15 responses to the thing already 17 responses all right so here's a couple uh 12th bruin says one of his favorites is university of scandals and crimes for usc which Mm -hmm. i've i haven't heard that one before but i like it um Let's see. Uh, somebody says Peter Naus one says Arizona State. Yes, that's the insult. <laughs> Jacob Thorpe just said Oregon. Like, I don't know if he was calling out to Oregon people or if they're just like Oregon's the insult. I'm not sure. Um, another one for ASU. This is from Dollar Yo on Twitter. A Simpleton's University. ASU, yeah. Simpleton's University. I like that. Christopher um, says University of Spoiled Children, which we mentioned already. Uh, Casey Cosgrove said, "You dollar sign uh, C. I never considered an insult as a Trojan. I always liked it. So, hmm. And that's what makes you a Trojan, Casey. Um, <laughs> uh, P. Gall 001. Uh, in TED 2, they joke about ASU being HPVU. Jesus. <laughs> ASU gets uh, a lot of like the Simpsons take shots at Arizona State. Like yeah. there's 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 significant shots out there from just like mainstream, you know, like yeah. sitcoms and stuff. Uh, Mr. TPSM, our friend Tom said, uh, not the Pac-12, but Florida State is sometimes referred to as the criminals. Yeah. Seminoles, criminals. I like it. Uh, Snow Coog, uh, S-N-O Coog, uh, U-Dump. U-Dump was built on top of a landfill. I didn't know that. We have Ofred13 with Horgan, uh, Horgan, which is one I've heard before. Um, uh, Mr. T. Don Marlowe32 with some information. Oh. Ted Bundy was a Ute. Yes, but then uh, Orion Stonebreaker says he was also a Husky. I don't know if he was. He lived. Did he go to school there? I just saw like a thing. No, I think he just murdered a lot of people. He murdered people in both there. places, but I think he went to school in Utah. Like, so. You know, maybe he was both. I think he was both. Did I think he, do, he did go to? I, well, he was doing know. his law degree. Maybe he started his law degree there, or was it the law degree? Might have been Utah. I don't know. I saw like a couple of the specials. It's fascinating, like how crazy that dude was. Yeah. 
Tom, the, Mr. TPSM says, I also like calling the Cardinal the great Stanford. Like Stanford's more about a voice inflection too when you're talking about Stanford. The great Satanford. Oh, is that a different one? Okay. Satanford? No, what the no, heck that's, is that? that's from Tom. I also okay. like calling Cardinal the great Satanford. I don't oh. know. Um, and then we've got, let's see, what else we got in here? We've got... University of Spoiled Children. That's the classic one. Um, Ollie ooh, says, Ari- oh, yeah, no, go ahead. You can do it. Ollie says Arizona equals North. No, no Gales vocational school. Oh, and- God. Oh, my God. Entire show. North Nogales. Nogales. <laughs> Nogales. Is that what that is? Yeah. Vocational school and tire shop. Oh, anyway, um, and then WS. There's a, Trojan. there's a guy on our message board that goes by. I always think of it as No Gales, but it's No Gallus. That's mm-hmm. that's yeah. he must be from there. Maybe that's interesting. Right. Okay, maybe who knows? Uh, the shirts they used to sell at USC in the late '80s had the best. Now everyone likes the taste of beaver. Who could cheer for a mascot that licks its own balls, etc.? Okay, interesting. Cool. Um, All right, good stuff from Twitter. King George Bruins with the R, like lowercase B. Uh, uppercase R. That one always struck me as like kind of dumb. Yeah, there's a lot of dumb. Ones. I always liked the the building on the acronym of UCLA. I thought there were always kind of some fun ones with that. Oh yeah, um, some are not politically correct, but no. But there's always like University of Crenshaw left on Artesia. There are a couple of them. Oh, okay. Um, I like the U dump. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, there were some. Uh, let me see if there was more. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, thanks. Thanks, Twitter. Or uh, University of Crenshaw left on Artesia was for El Camino, but it was funny because you could say, oh, I go to UCLA. It's University of Crenshaw left on Artesia because oh. you go to El Camino. Uh, one swell foop. Uh, I like that. Uh, the University of, I'm sorry, the Southern branch of the University of California, Berkeley. It's both historically correct and pisses off everyone involved. Yeah, that is kind of a deep cut that would piss off a lot of people. So wait, is that so UCLA? It's not the it's not the southern branch of the University of California, Berkeley. That was the original like oh. designation of it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got yeah. Ted Bundy involved. We talked a lot about Disney princesses. We had a real journalist on. We talked what I mean Washington. We talked Arizona. We did a we did a lot today. This was a show. This is a real show. Yeah. Like all over the place show. Yeah. I'm proud of us. We're, we're yeah, us. We always do that. We put ourselves. <laughs> hey, you showed up and did a job. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Way to go. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up. Uh, that's David Woods. I am Ryan Abraham. We do appreciate everyone listening, especially your hour number two here. So thanks so much. And we will talk to you next time.